James chapter 1, which we uh, began uh, last Lord's Day. And uh, I, we're going to be considering, get my notes up here, we're going to be considering verses 5 uh, through 8, but just for context, I'll begin reading once again in verse 2. So let us uh, once again give ear to the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. And we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, as we saw last week, James began his letter by reminding his audience that when they face trials of various kinds in life, trials are not a a reason or an occasion to lament or to engage in self-pity. But rather, as James says, we ought to rejoice when we encounter various trials. Why? Well, because that means God is at work in us. As he saw, as he explained, he uses trials to produce in us steadfastness or endurance. And that in turn to conform us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, his son. So that at the end of the day, we will be perfect, complete lacking in nothing. Well, of course, none of us can claim to have arrived. None of us can claim to be perfect at this point in their life, and we are in need of many things, not the least of which is wisdom. And so that's why James immediately jumps in in verse 5 to say, if any of you lacks wisdom. And so it's important for us to ask at this point, what is wisdom? Well, you see, wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge entails learning different facts about things. But wisdom is the ability to take that knowledge and to apply it in life in a way that produces good results. You see, you could be very smart, you could be very intelligent, and yet live your life in a way that is quite foolish. On the other hand, you can lack what we might consider formal education, and yet you can exhibit a life of wisdom. And so wisdom is, in, it, it entails knowledge of things, but it is different than knowledge. It's not just a knowledge of bare facts. It's the ability to apply that. It's also important to distinguish between wisdom and the law. When we read the law, like we did today in Leviticus chapter 19, you'll find that there's a list of do's and there's a list of don'ts. Do this don't do that. The law is very clear, very straightforward. It's black and white. 
Well, wisdom takes the knowledge of the law and applies it to the various uh, situations we face in life. And it's not always so clear. It's not always so black and white. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And you think that, well, that makes sense. You know, you have a fool who's spouting off all sorts of foolish things. And it's just as foolish for you to engage in a conversation with that person uh, to, to you know, make them uh, cl- think that their claims are legitimate. Don't answer a fool according to his folly unless you become him, like him yourself. But then Proverbs goes on to say, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. There you have two completely contradictory commands. Answer not a fool, answer a fool. And so the question is, well, wait a minute, what do I need to do? Do I answer a fool when he's spouting off or do I just ignore him and go my way? How do we know when to do one and when to do do the other? Wisdom. Wisdom will dictate whether it's, it's the right thing for you to answer someone according to his folly or not. You see, wisdom is knowing how the world works and thus what sort of conduct is likely to be effective or destructive in a particular circumstance. Let me give you another example. Take the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. It's very clear, very straightforward. Well, how do you go about keeping that commandment? You could turn to the book of Proverbs, which explains at length how you can and should avoid the adulterous woman. Not only practical steps, like keep your steps far away from her, don't go near her door, but also highlighting the complete folly, how foolish it is and destructive it is to go her way. See, wisdom knows how the world works, and it's able to appreciate not just the, the bare commands, do this, don't that, but sees the bigger picture, sees the, the greater outcome in life. That is what biblical wisdom entails. It is the skillful action that puts the perception we have of the world around us into practice. And that is James, James's main concern in his book, practice. Very, he's, he's a very, very practical man. Let me give you an example in chapter 3. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So James doesn't care if you claim to be wise. He wants you to show it with meekness. He goes on to describe the wisdom which comes from above, from, from God, that it is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the type of wisdom that we as the people of God should desire, that we should, uh, that we should show by our good conduct. And so just taking the, the, the question about trials in life, uh, uh, how ought we to respond when we face trials in life? Well, wisdom will dictate that. Wisdom will show. And so if we desire, if we can and should desire wisdom, what are we to do? 
Well, James's answer seems pretty simple. He says, ask God. The first thing we need to do if we desire to uh, have wisdom in our lives is we need to pray. Later on, James says, you have not because you ask not. And our Lord teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Elsewhere, Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. These are some pretty extraordinary promises that we find in God's word. Whatever you ask, Jesus says, if you ask and pray in faith, you're going to get it. You might say, well, I have a whole list of things I'd like to pray for right now then. Let's, let's stop and pray. Well, keep in mind, we need to understand these, these promises in light of, in, in the context, in the rest of Scripture. But of course, whenever, when Jesus says, whatever you ask, of course, that is qualified by whatever God has promised. And when he says, if you pray in faith, of course, you're praying according to the will of God as it, is, as it has been revealed to us in his word. And so this isn't a carte blanche promise. We're not given a blank check by God so that we can just fill out any amount we would like. He's not a genie in a bottle. No, but we nonetheless pray with confidence that he will give us what we ask if it's what he's promised. Now, when James says that he gives to all, of course, that too is qualified by all who ask. God will not give his grace and spirit to people who do not desire his grace and spirit, who do not ask for it, who do not pray for it. And so we are urged to ask for wisdom. But the God to whom we are praying is one who gives generously. So James says he gives generously to all without reproach. Now, the English word generous denotes somebody who gives freely and abundantly. And that is certainly true of God. God is a very, very generous God. And yet the Greek word here translated generous literally means without any mixture. And it, I think what, what James is getting at here is he's describing God's singular purpose in giving. You can contrast that with the way in which we give things. We often give things with mixed motives. We want to give it to the person, but we kind of want to keep it for ourselves. And we're kind of wondering, are they really worthy of this gift? Are they going to take care of this? We have all these things going on in our mind where we give with one hand and we take away with the other. That is not true of God. When God gives something, he gives it wholly and entirely. It is his singular purpose in mind to give this gift. He gives without reproach. He doesn't question us. So, you know, when we ask, when we get on our knees and we ask God for wisdom, he's not standing in heaven tapping his foot with his arms crossed saying, well, I don't think you would appreciate the wisdom, so I'm not going to give it to you. He doesn't, he doesn't look at us and judge whether we are worthy of the gift or not. No, he gives it freely to those who ask in faith. This is how God is. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so making an argument from the lesser to the greater, if even we as evil fathers, as wicked and depraved men, are are able for the most part to give good gifts to our children because they ask us, how much more? Will our perfect heavenly Father, who knows who knows all of our needs before we even ask them, who is entirely motivated to give us the good gifts in the first place, how much more will He give the things to us that we need? It's part of His nature. As Jesus tells us in Luke chapter twelve, "Fear not, little flock; it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom." And so here we see that the Christian should approach God with much confidence, knowing not only that God has promised to give us the things we need in this life and in the life to come, but that he desires to do so. He's eagerly desiring for us to ask for ask him in prayer so that he could give us the things we need. But James goes on to say, let him ask in faith. And so here we see that faith is required. It's not just a a, a bear going through the motions, getting down on our knees, asking God for wisdom. No, we actually need to do this in faith. Well, then what is faith in this context? Well, faith is not only a knowledge of what God has revealed to us in his word, but also a personal trust. Later on in the book, James talks about how even demons have faith. They believe that God exists and they tremble. And yet that's not saving faith because they haven't applied it to themselves. Saving faith, the type of faith that James speaks of here, is one that knows the good news of the gospel, that it's true for others, but it's also true for me. And so when he says, let him ask in faith, you're praying, uh, believing with a personal trust. But it's easy to misunderstand or misconstrue what James is saying here when he says, let him ask in faith without any doubting. We might be tempted to think that faith is somehow a type of force or power. And depending on how strongly you believe something, depending on how strong your faith is, there, uh, you, will have, uh, you will receive from God. That is not the case. Faith is not a force. Faith is only as strong as what you are putting your faith into. Presently, you are putting your faith in the pews that you are sitting on. When you sat down on that pew, you were trusting that it would hold your weight and continue to hold your weight throughout the service. But if somehow that pew was broken, or if somehow somebody removed that out from underneath you as you were sitting down, I don't care how strong you believed. I don't care how strong your faith was, you're going to fall to the ground. So faith is only as strong as what you're putting your faith into. And since we put our faith in an infinite God, then guess what? Faith taps into that power. Faith is receiving that Not as some sort of meritorious thing that God's impressed with, but as an instrument, a necessary instrument to receive the gifts of God. Well, if that's the case then, then why does James say, ask in faith without any doubting? 
Does this mean that we can never entertain any sort of thought of doubt, any even fleeting thought of doubt in our mind? Do we have to believe with all of our heart all the time? Well, no, I don't think that's what James is saying. As a matter of fact, that's impossible. All of our faith is mixed with doubt to one degree or another. Calvin says we spend half of our lives as atheists because we, our faith is always impure and mixed with doubt. James is not condemning the man who cried, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Even if our faith was the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, you could say to that mountain, be cast in the sea, and it would happen. And so what does James mean when he says, without any doubting? This word translated doubt literally means to distinguish, differentiate, or to judge. He uses it later on in chapter 2 in the context of showing favoritism to the rich man who walks into church. And you show favoritism to the man who's dressed in fine apparel and wearing jewelry and all the rest. But to the poor man, you say, you sit here at my feet. James says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's that word, making a distinction, discriminating between one person or another by showing favoritism. Here in this idea, since it's not having to do with other people, but with ourselves, the idea is that we shouldn't dispute with oneself. You shouldn't second guess yourself as you get down on your knees and pray in faith. And James illustrates what that looks like. He uses the illustration of a wave. Now, we all should be familiar with waves since we live close to the coast. But when you go to the beach and you watch the waves, what do you see? Typically, you're watching the wave as it's been tra- after it has traveled for thousands of miles and as it crashes on the sand. That's not what James is talking about, the crashing of the wave upon the sand. No, he's talking about the wave as it's been traveling out at sea. As it's being driven to and fro by the wind, what happens to that wave is it never maintains one shape. It's constantly changing out at sea. The idea is that it is, the idea is being, you're vacillating, you're going back and forth, you're not keeping a constant. Paul uses a very similar identical metaphor in Ephesians chapter 4 as he talks about the harmful effects of false teaching upon immature believers. He speaks so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Well, if that's true of false teaching to immature believers, James also warns us it could be true of us. As we get down on our knees and we pray for wisdom, and yet we're second-guessing ourselves. We're literally being... Double-minded, he says in verse 8. He's a double-minded man. Literally, you have two souls. You have mixed allegiances. On the one hand, you're claiming to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you are also, with the other hand, desiring friendship with the world. On the one hand, you're praying to God for wisdom that comes from above, but inwardly you're seeking the wisdom of this age that is characterized by pride and selfish ambition. You're double-minded. You have double allegiance. 
And so the, the idea here, the warning that James has for us is not that we should pray for wisdom, but maybe you have a fleeting doubt in your mind that maybe God won't give it to you. No, that's not the idea. The idea, the warning, is that we pray for wisdom, but doubt that we even want to receive it. We're praying with our fingers crossed behind our back. Lord, give me wisdom, but I'd rather not have it. This is what one author calls spiritual schizophrenia. Well, that type of person, a person that, that uh, is double-minded, James says, should not, receive, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. See, this idea of being a double-minded Christian simply cannot exist for James. It's not just inconsistent, it's impossible. We must love God with all of our heart. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, James says, makes himself an enemy with God. You cannot serve two masters. Now, this is not to say, as James says elsewhere in his letter, that we all stumble in many ways. And that in our need, God gives us more grace. And that as we humble ourselves before the Lord, confessing our sins, he will forgive us and exalt us. So we got to keep all those things in mind. But if fundamentally you have mixed allegiance, if you think that you can be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a friend of the world, if you desire wisdom from above, but also really like the wisdom from below, which is earthly and demonic, James says those things just don't mix together. Such double-minded devotion is, is not consistent with a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He warns us in chapter 4 that that is spiritual adultery. And so our desire for God's wisdom must match his singular desire to bless us with the wisdom. That's all he wants to do is give us Christ and all of his benefits, and we need to receive that with wholehearted devotion. And so as we are encouraged to ask of God the things that we need in this life as well as the life to come, and as we are warned against this double-mindedness, this mixed devotion in approaching our Lord, we must also keep in mind how it is that he often answers our prayers, and in particular, how he makes us to grow in wisdom. Now this, I would assume, would necessitate an entirely different sermon, but just in closing, I think it's important to highlight some of the ways in which God actually answers our prayers and grants to us wisdom. If we feel like we need wisdom, we need to pray in faith, and God will give us that wisdom, but how does he do it? Does he just strike us with lightning, and all of a sudden we're a wise sage? There's a scene in one of my favorite movies, The Matrix, with the lead character Nero, play, or Nero, Neo, played by that wonderful actor Keanu Reeves, is hooked up to a computer, and they are uh, programming his brain with software, uh, teaching him various martial art techniques. And at one point, Nero, uh, Neo, just wakes up and he says, "Oh, I know kung fu." To which he's asked, "Prove it." And then that launches into a, a really cool kung fu fight scene. But it, wouldn't it be great if that's how God gives us wisdom? We just get a USB drive and 
plug our brains into the computer and all of a sudden we're immensely wise, as wise as Solomon in all of his glory? Well, that's not how it works. When we get on our knees and pray for wisdom, we need to realize that God uses means to fulfill our prayers. And so how does he give us wisdom? Well, I think first and foremost, we can say he gives us wisdom in his word. Here we find not only of the wisdom of the world, but we find the wisdom which comes from above, and especially the wisdom of God as it has been displayed in the cross of Christ, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. But you can also go to other books, such as the book of Proverbs, which speaks at length about wisdom. And so certainly, if you desire wisdom, you ought to be going constantly to God's word to learn it. But when you go to God's word to learn about wisdom, and I'm thinking here in particular about the book of Proverbs, you'll find something very interesting, that, that Solomon, as he's seeking to learn wisdom, he's going out to nature. And he's learning wisdom from the world around him. And so we can learn the wisdom of God through things like boats and birds and ants. You can go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. And so we see that God teaches us wisdom, not just in his word, what we might call special revelation, but he teaches us wisdom from the world around us, what we might call general revelation. You also see in the book of Proverbs, another very important source of wisdom is from the people around us, both in a positive sense. Here I'm thinking primarily of your mother and your father. That's how the book of Proverbs starts off. My son, hear the teaching of your father and the instruction of your mother. Listen to your parents. Listen to your elders. Listen to those who have life experiences beyond you. You can learn wisdom from them. But we also can learn from people's negative examples. Think of the fool. You can watch the way they go and say, I do not want to live a life like that. And so we see that God gives us his wisdom through his word, through nature, but most importantly, through the community that he gives to us. And so we're not on, on a, a, as lone rangers on this quest for wisdom, but no, we do this together as a community. But there's... As we are armed with God's word, as we are learning about the world around us, and as we are living our lives in the community that God has given to us, we also need to keep in mind that God gives us wisdom through trials. And that's why I thought it's so important for me to read in the context, beginning in verse 2. Remember last week how it is that God works in us, these various graces, how he makes us perfect and complete so we're lacking nothing? Well, he sends us trials in life. He sends us tests and trials so that we would be, uh, that we would pass the test and grow and gain wisdom. As we see, skipping ahead to verse 12, blessed is the man who who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so when we see the need for wisdom in our lives. And as we pray in faith that God would grant to us wisdom, know also that with that prayer, or the answer to that prayer, may also include trials. Now, none of us, I don't think, ever get down on our knees and say, oh Lord, will you please send me more trials in life? I don't think anyone in their right mind would be praying that. But when we pray in faith, we know that God often does send us trials. 
And so maybe one way you can pray is, Lord, please don't send me any trials that I cannot bear. Or give me the strength to bear these trials, to bear these tests, so that I might gain a heart of wisdom. We'll know that God wants to give us wisdom. It is part of his nature. It is his good pleasure to bestow upon us the kingdom. And so, Christian, be encouraged in your faith, knowing that God will give us all that we need in this life. He knows the things that we need before we even ask them. And so let us be encouraged even this week as we go about our daily lives, knowing that God is caring for us. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is your good pleasure to bless us in Christ Jesus and to give us all of his benefits. And yet, Lord, you require of us that we ask you in faith for the things that we need. And yet, Lord, we fall short so often in our prayer, in our belief, and our trust in you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to continue earnestly in prayer, to seek the things that we need in our sanctification, knowing all the while that these that the answer to those prayers might entail various trials, we pray that you would grant to us strength as you conform us more and more into the image of your Son. And we ask all of these things in your name. Amen.